University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. I love this song, especially since when I was eight years old, I was missing my two front teeth for Christmas, and Mama said I had such a pretty smile. We're in our series, Unfamiliar Christmas Carols, and we're looking at some of the critical stories from the Christmas narrative in a new way. And some of them really do connect with familiar songs that you've heard and others that you haven't heard. So for this week's Christmas carol, we turn to the one we all know and love, All I Want for Christmas is to Not Get Stoned. For this, we take a look at Luke chapter 1, verse 26. The scripture says, In the sixth month. Now, the sixth month reference in the text is referring to the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And if you recall from our text from last week, the gospel narrative does not open with the promise of a birth of Jesus, but actually a promise of a birth to an old couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the child to be promised would be, we know, John the baptizer, who would prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. But Luke carefully lays the context of the gospel by telling us that it took place during the time of Herod the Great and the Roman rule under Caesar Augustus. Known as the glorious Pax Romana, this was an era of peace, maybe for the Romans, but subjugation and taxation for the Hebrew people. This was a time of chaos uh, that the, the people of Israel had experienced time and time again. But God heard their prayers. And not only did God hear Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer, but they also heard the prayer of Israel. For it will be John, this boy to be born to this old couple who would prepare Israel for the Messiah's coming. And the narrative, as it compares to the narrative of Exodus, shows us this unimaginable time under the the Hebrew people in which Pharaoh is, is putting the Hebrew people through this perpetual state of production. The slaves had to produce more bricks and less resources. They would build more storage units uh, out of these bricks. And a cycle continues. There was no end in sight. And so the gospel writers are trying to compare the time of Exodus to the time of Jesus' arrival. As the great Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann put it, the rhetoric is restlessness. In the context, all levels of social power, the Egyptians, pharaohs, supervisors, taskmasters, slaves, Rome, and now... Herod are uniformly caught and committed to the grind of endless production. You see, this is the state that the Hebrew people find themselves in, a state of ceaselessness in which they cannot believe that an end is in sight. One enslavement, one perpetual tyrannical ruler after another. I wonder if you stop and think for yourself, and I'm not trying to be insensitive enough to compare the enslavement and later subjugation of the Hebrew people under the Egyptians and the Romans to our context today. But sometimes we don't realize that we can become imprisoned to ceaselessness. Just think about the season we're in right now. It's the season of celebration and joy, a season of giving which really translates into a season of spending, rushing around, maxing out our lives, more stuff, more spending. And I don't care what we say about this season because we all know that feeling that comes at the end of October when we start to worry about, we got to get our shopping done now. (laughs) 
We've become so enamored with the season of consumerism that the average uh, American household spends over $1,500 on Christmas gifts alone. But here's a fun fact. Despite how much we spend, 22% of Americans believe uh, their spending will leave them in debt. But here's a fun fact. 46% of people uh, have reported that they lied, that they actually like their Christmas gifts. <laughs> Stop and think about all that worry, all that stress, all that wrapping. Just for 46% of the time, they don't actually like what you give them. <laughs> but Christmas is a microcosm of the American culture of ceaselessness. Without realizing it, we get swept up in the current of more whether it be more money or a bigger house or better car or the latest phones or the newest thing or keeping up with everybody is doing at a faster pace. And we're so willing to commit to this ceaseless culture that we give more of our time, we double our workload, we max out our lives for that bigger dream, that better thing that we think we need. We live in the busiest culture that's ever walked the face of the earth. The average human being in America, uh, utilizes 120% of their waking hours. The thought is that we are constantly not only doing something, but we are multitasking as we go. And you can imagine a day in which, can you imagine a day in which you don't see yourself doing this, this thing again and again, the next thing you need to get to? Can you imagine a day where you're not in constant busyness or constantly feeling like you have to consume something? Can you imagine not doing that for a day? What about a week? What about a month? What would happen to you and your work and your relationships if you stepped out of the ceaselessness of it all? You see, that anxiety you're feeling is proof that we can and very much are, are probably slaves to ceaselessness. And so, yes, we should be able to relate to our text on a deep emotional and social level. But it says this in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Gabriel was sent to the town of Nazareth. If you were stating this to a first century Israelite reading this passage, they probably would have laughed out loud. Nazareth was a no-name hick town in the backcountry of Galilee. Nazareth was nothing. In fact, it's not mentioned in the entire Old Testament. Even the great uh, Hebrew historian Josephus doesn't have it in any of his writings. And early on in Jesus' ministry, when someone finds out he's from Nazareth, the man remarks, can anything good come from Nazareth? So Nazareth was nothing. So why is Luke bringing us to this Hick village in the backwater. Verse 21 tells us about a girl named Mary. Who's Mary? Now, we imagine Mary uh, as this 30-year-old woman with perfect hair, no dirt under her nails, a golden crown on her head. But the truth is, Mary was an unremarkable teenager, a virgin pledged to a carpenter. Don't think glitz and glamour. Think peasant girl, peasant dress, pulling water from a well, collecting firewood to heat her family's home. Think of her, as most likely she was, illiterate, having dirty feet, wearing sandals, walking around in the dirt all day. Mary was not this polished person sitting on a throne, but more of a poor girl hunched over at work. And she's pledged to be married to a guy named Joseph. Again, nothing about this story would be out of the ordinary. 
This was a standard path for every girl in Mary's day. Her father would have auctioned her off to the highest suitor in town, receiving a dowry or a payment for her marriage. But what's fascinating is this turn in the story. Luke has taken us from this enslaved people group over to this insignificant girl. And as a young girl in a tremendously patriarchal society, she would have had no rights, no say-so over her life. Mary was enslaved by insignificance and a lack of control of what was happening in her own life. But what makes this story so unordinary is the angel comes to her, to her of all people. What was Mary thinking and feeling? It's not a foreign concept to many of us. We, like Mary, might feel insignificant because of our knowledge or our perspective or our resources or our influence or our skills. Who am I? What do I have to offer? What can I do? What can I be used for? These Questions and feelings of insignificance and inadequacy are, are very real and very difficult to overcome, whether because it's a sense of worthlessness because of our work or our relationships or our friendships or our community or our health or our fitness or our spirituality or, or just a general sense of worth. Research showed that most common insecurities are connected to our relationships with others, our, our work or our school performance, our finances, our health, and other responsibilities. It is not uncommon for people to feel like they don't fit in, that they're not good enough, that they don't get it right, or that they're just a failure. People feel insignificant about what tomorrow will bring, their, their children, their family, their spouse, their jobs, their debt, their bills, their undiagnosed medical issues, their disadvantages, their loneliness, their workload, and all these things lead to these feelings of inferiority. And for many, the sense of worthlessness or unworthiness, because you feel like you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not experienced enough because of where you come from or your gender, your economic status, or your ethnicities. Research has found that men and women have the most common insecurities are almost the same. Job insecurity, upward mobility, relationship stability, financial security, body image, emotional instability, sexuality, and not meeting expectations. And the feelings of insignificance leave us feeling like our voice isn't heard, that our thoughts go unheeded, our actions are unnoticed. And they cause us to turn inward like, like a turtle securing itself in its shell. Except the world is still turning around us and life is still happening. Conflicts are still going on and people still need us. And there's something inside of us, part of our soul, part of our being that needs to know that where can I fit in? Who values me? And this is exactly where Mary finds herself in this place. Verse 28 says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
You know, so often we look at this story with so much joy and jubilation of what it means for us, those that are beneficiary of God's Son living among us, showing us this new way of life, of dying, of resurrecting, and offering us salvation. But let me truly translate what this message from the angel to Mary would have sounded like in her ears. Surprise, you're going to deliver God's son into this suspiciously patriarchal and highly religious culture. Best of luck not getting stoned to death. At best, the report from Mary is that she's carrying God's son in her womb would have received those side-eyed glances and snickers about her mental state in her town. Crazy Mary, they probably would have called her, in the best of circumstances. But the most realistic set of circumstances was that this news would have been met by a trial of her peers, ending with this girl being dragged outside of town and literally having people throw stones at her until she died. And her parents would have lived with this shame for the rest of their lives. You see, according to the law of Moses, a woman impregnated outside of wedlock was a top candidate for being stoned to death. Our bodies are not equipped to deal with the moment that Mary was dealing with in this moment. Our, our, our blood begins to pump faster, our heart rate goes up, our, our pupils dilate, our breathing hastens, our ears begin to pulsate, and our mind begins to race. This is the fight, flight, or freeze moment at its finest. And over the thumping heart, the angel tries to tell her this significant message. This is going to be God's child that will reign over the world His kingdom will be from everlasting to everlasting, and you are going to give him the name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. His name will literally mean why he was born. So how would you respond if you were Mary in this moment? Probably exactly how Mary responds in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, "'How can this be since I am a virgin?' The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who is said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. How many of us are truly surprised by Mary's response that she honestly probably should have said, are you crazy? How do you think I'm going to explain that A, I'm pregnant, B, that it's the son of God? Do you think people are just going to come up to me and say, congratulations, Mary. Wow, you did it. The son of God. Mary asks, how will this be? I'm a virgin. I ain't been with a man. You almost feel like Mary's trying to give the angel the birds and the bees talk. Now, I do have to point out the contradiction of how the angel handled Mary's question of doubt versus Zachariah's question of doubt. You know, Mary asks, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And Zachariah responds to being told that his wife in their old age would have a child. He says, how can you be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife will be well along in years. Again, I'm going to die on the hill that the reason Zechariah was struck dumb or mute, because of uh, he revealed his wife's age to a complete stranger. It was a cardinal sin to the ancients, and it still rings true today. And yet you've got to love this one-liner from the angel. For nothing 
will be impossible with God. Do you want to believe that you're pregnant with the Son of God? A barren old woman is now bearing a child. So yeah, a virgin can conceive. The Lord can enter into human history as a child Mary. But at the root of Mary's response are some deeply existential and theological questions. How is this possible? How can God break into human history? How can God be among us when we face such impossible turmoil right now? And for the Hebrew people, they have been waiting for centuries through struggles of failure and tyrannical ruler after tyrannical ruler. And for Mary, she may have never, ever been considered for any other purpose in her life except to be a faithful daughter, a dutiful wife, and then a caring mother who had no say-so over her life and her rights. And for some of us, maybe we realize it and are exhausted, but we live in a ceaseless, busy culture and work and consumerism and relationships and lives. They seem to be chains that bind us until what? Retirement? Maybe even death? And for some, maybe we've dealt with a lifetime of feeling insignificant, unable to, to have any say-so over what's happening in our life. So how can this be? How can God break the chains of the many forms of enslavement we face in our lives? Last Christmas, Jennifer and I were excited about what we were giving the girls for Christmas. Um, we um, bought a pop-up camper for our family. And you see, we had fallen in love with road tripping uh, and seeing parts of the country we had never explored before. So I bought this old pop-up camper in October and then been working on it for a long time. So we surprised the girls on Christmas Day. Not only we're going on this pop-up camper, but now we're going to go on this road trip to Utah and Arizona. We're going to see all these different national parks. I told you the story recently. We drove over 22 hours to Moab, Utah on the first day. And we pulled into the camping spot at Dead Horse State Park and began to crank up the pop-up camper and then heard this really loud pop. So I lowered it down and then tried to crank it again, except this time the backside of the pop-up camper was not lifting. Yes, after months of working hard to fix this camper up, installing a new door, electrical lines, lights, and so much more, and after driving over 22 hours with a trip with all the plans centering around sleeping in this camper, our camper was devastatingly broken. And I called a repairman who gave me the grim news that this was not a quick fix, and it certainly was not a cheap one. But this frustratingly defeating situation, we pivoted as a family and made the most of it, creating one of the most memorable experiences we had ever had together. What an unexpected gift from a very broken situation. And that's the heart of our story. God is stepping into human history to give us an unexpected gift in our very broken situations. Not just for Mary, not just for the Hebrew people, but for us. And the angel Gabriel has just stepped into a broken situation, both lived experience of God's people and this young girl named Mary, and yet we learn that God is stepping into human history to break the chains that bind them. This is God stepping into human history, something that seems impossible. But this isn't God just stepping into human history to give a good speech, to smite a few people, and to let everyone know that they should just worship God. Instead, what we see God stepping into human history is to break the chains of ceaselessness, 
to break the chains of insignificance. And we know that this isn't just any baby being born. This is the Son of God who will be called Jesus. The Son of God who didn't walk from town to town and make everyone grovel at his feet. This is the Son of God who touched the lives of the untouchable, that healed the disease and sickness, cast out demons, resurrected the dead, stood toe-to-toe against the unjust social and religious and political powers of his day. This is the Son of God who took on destruction and slavery and darkness and death, breaking its chains and, and liberating people in a new way. This is the Son of God who would stand against the toxic male patriarchy that liberated women as an integral leader in his faith movement, then and then into the early church. Remember, it was women who preached the most important message the world has ever heard. He is not here. He has risen from the dead. This is the Son of God that broke the chains of outcast, the poor, the marginalized, and the discarded, letting them first experience the radical love of God and the inclusiveness of the kingdom of God. This is so impossible. And yet God is in the business of impossible, for we find that the breaking of the cycle of our lives, the busyness, the oversaturated content, the stuff, the more, the power, the rat race of work and endless action, we find that God is inviting us into what seems impossible, but into a new way of living. Where our world says faster and overloaded and endless and exhausted, we find the Son of God declaring to us, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you what? Rest. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, where you will sleep, for God will provide you everything that you need. We encounter a world that wants to exclude and isolate and vilify and alienate people who are different from them. We see that God is actually inviting these types of people into the family of God. For it is in the Son of God that we hear in Luke chapter 4 saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's he's, uh, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoner recover sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. God is in the business of impossible, stepping into human history to break the chains of the cycle of ceaselessness. But we see within our narrative that God does impossible things like taking a barren woman and giving her a child, like going to a 14-year-old peasant girl who lives in insignificance and makes her one of the most significant people in human history. God brings light into darkness, liberation into enslavement, life out of death. But there's one more impossible feat that's left in our text, and it concludes in verse 38. Then Mary said, Here I am, a servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. You know, it's so easy to gloss over what Mary has said. Because if we really stop and think about it, this seems like the last thing that we would expect anyone to say in this situation. Let's unpack what she's really saying by saying yes to God in this moment. What she's really saying is, I understand that my future husband can divorce me by believing that I'm an unfaithful woman. I understand that the people of my town will think I'm a woman who sleeps around even though I'm not. I understand that nobody will believe me when I tell them that I'm pregnant 
and haven't slept with someone else. She's saying that I understand that my child will be looked upon as one of the most uh, awful people in human history of not having a father. I understand that I won't get to have my experience with my husband early on in the way that most people do. I understand that I will have a child to care for. I understand that it seems so impossible what's being asked of me. And yet she says, let it be. This could not have been an easy response for Mary. People were not going to look at her and say, what a godly woman. And I'm sure for Mary, it didn't seem that being pregnant at 14 was what she had in the cars. And yet Mary was willing to step out in faith and allow God to use her for a greater purpose. It's a faith that declares whatever God wishes for my life, whatever God desires, whatever purpose is behind this, I want to be a part of it. Mary had a script for her life, but in this moment, it completely changed when she said, let it be. Mary's story is our story. And as we examine the enslavement of ceaselessness and busyness, do we have faith that God can give us freedom and a new way of living? As we examine the chains that bind us in a life of insignificance, do we have faith that God invites us into freedom and purposefulness through Jesus. And for some, the journey of discovering freedom through Jesus begins today. And still for others, you, you are still experiencing the freedom of God. And the invitation from this story is to join the cause of Jesus, to become chain breakers in our lives, in our church, in our community, in our world. Let's enter into a time of reflection this morning.